Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series on the book of James. Uh, a few months ago, we were able to walk through the book of Colossians, and then we've taken a few weeks off to dive into some older episodes with James Jordan. Today, we don't have a few of our cohorts. Uh, Alistair Roberts is wrapping up his honeymoon. We're uh, thankful and praise God for his uh, recent marriage. And Peter Lightheart is spending uh, all of his mental energies right now uh, working on a new book. Um, so we look forward to having Peter and Alistair back with us in the coming weeks. In this episode, we're going to introduce the book of James, uh, and the occasion for this series is really a new commentary from our friend Jeff Myers, who is with us on this episode as always. Uh, this commentary is called Wisdom for Dissidents, and it's put out by our friends over at Athanasius Press. Uh, we really recommend that you all pick up a copy of that book, uh, and you can find a link to that book in the show notes. Uh, but to introduce our series on the book of James, we want to discuss some issues of authorship and dating and the context. But first, uh, Jeff, why James? What, what's been your history with the book of James, both teaching and preaching through it? And what drew you to this book in, in the first place? Yeah, good question. So um, about 16 years ago, 17 years ago, I preached a series on James. And that came about because a few years earlier, well, maybe four or five years earlier, well, maybe actually 10 years earlier, I preached a uh, series through Ecclesiastes, which then led to my book on Ecclesiastes, A Table in the Mist. And so uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'll, since I've been involved with uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament, particularly Ecclesiastes, I'll go to the letter that is said to be wisdom literature in the New Testament, and that's James. And so I started a series on James, started studying for it, and then started preaching on it. And I approached it, first of all, like I would maybe Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, uh, kind of wisdom, general wisdom for, for youth, for everyone, uh, for Christians, but uh, a, a loosely connected letter of aphorisms, wise aphorisms and, and uh, issues uh, that the church uh, will encounter. And there's a lot of truth in that, even even after I tell you what I came to with regard to the context, there's still some usefulness in that approach. But most modern commentaries don't give it a specific context. Um, so, but while I was studying, I came across some older commentators who, and the first thing that struck me was many of them took the language of chapter four, where James talks about, admonishes uh, the people about fights and quarrels and wars and murder takes that literally took that literally that people were actually at war with one another physically not just within the church but uh, toward their persecutors and that some had actually killed in their zealotry for the kingdom of god as christians as jewish christians they had actually killed and i found that fascinating and so i started thinking more about uh, that and what the context of James might be. Now, about this time, or maybe maybe earlier, I can't remember when, Peter, Peter Lightheart had 
wrote a, just a short little essay arguing for the possibility that James the Apostle was the author. We'll get into that a little later, I'm sure. And if it was James the Apostle, not James the Just and brother of, of Jesus, then it was a very early text in the 30s, possibly. And so just thinking about that and also examining carefully then the language of, of the letter came to the conclusion that James was written early. It was written to the Jewish Christians, early Jewish Christian converts who were, who were exiled, banished from Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen, and Saul and others went about as inquisitors trying to find these uh, new Christians, new uh, believers, which they con considered obviously heretics. And that, that that violent situation, that awful kind of context, James writes to, to Christians, frustrated Christians, who believe that they were called to change the world, that Jesus saved them, delivered them, and that their vocation as Christians was indeed cultural renewal, as you read earlier from the Theopolis mission statement. Jesus had promised a kingdom of righteousness. The kingdom was at hand, and now the kingdom is here, and Jesus has been installed as Lord and King. But it's not turning out the way they thought it would. Uh, why are they being driven from their homes, their property confiscated? Why are some of their sons and daughters uh, being rounded up and tortured and some of them killed? What's going on here? And so what stands out, I think, in this letter is that there's this passionate anger of these persecuted Christians, and that anger has led to supremely foolish talk and action, particularly with the leadership, the brothers in these scattered communities, which is why James makes a big point about the language, the speech of these brothers and how it is inciting them to zealotry. Um, and that that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the cross, the way of, of peaceful, spiritual, heavenly wisdom. So the wisdom, the wisdom motif comes in here, but it comes in in the context of the severe trials they're undergoing and how they should talk and behave within that context so as to further the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the I appreciate this being in the Three New Eyes series because one of the things that we've appreciated so much from our brother James Jordan over the years is how he's able to help us see, see the text more clearly than we have before. And once I read in your book, you know, the types of things that these people are dealing with, once I got a little bit of the taste of that context, um, it really feels like more of like a pressure cooker type book than kind of an easygoing Solomonic uh, type of proverbial book. Um, but, you know, they're engaging in things that could bring forth death. You mentioned in 114 of James, um, there's rampant malice. There's judging others with evil thoughts. Uh, there's temptations to curse people. Um, there's hateful zeal and political ambitions. So all of these things are right there in the book. Uh, and so once uh, that context was discussed, it, it really becomes it really brought the brought the book into a new a new light for me. I found that really helpful. Yeah, let me just say this. I think that that's one thing that modern Christians often miss in the New Testament history. 
um, the book of Acts is, uh, and, and they, it's hard for us to enter into the frustration of yeah. these early Christians and what they're experiencing. If you look at the book of Acts, they're being driven out. They're being tortured. Can you imagine? Okay. Can you imagine a family of yeah. new believers in the Messiah? You know, maybe a few years. Well, it is it maybe not a few years. I think the, uh, the uh, if I remember right, the martyrdom of Stephen takes place within a matter of months. And all of a sudden, all these believers at the day of Pentecost, many of them have gone back to their, their own respective um, countries, of course, but many of them are in Jerusalem. Now they're driven out. They have to leave behind what? Their houses, their mm-hmm. businesses. They have to, what are they just uh, going out with a cart and a donkey and uh, the clothes on their backs? And they're having to live. And not only that, they're being pursued and they're being hassled. And I mean, I continually find these little references that I miss uh, in in my reading, in my New Testament reading here and there. So I'm working through Hebrews right now in a sermon series. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, he says to them, now this is written somewhat later, I believe, than James. But he says to these Hebrew Christians, recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Right, you right. had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, it's just references like that remind us that these people we're undergoing severe temptation trials and the temptations that arise from those trials. Yeah. And we, we see some of the seeds of this kind of frustration, even in the gospels, don't we, where Jesus is rejected in a Samaritan village and to the disciples say, you know, should we call down fire from heaven? You know, and um, obviously we see in the book of Acts, this, um, the general response when from the Jews, particularly uh, when, for instance, Paul is uh, going against them and he's getting the popularities to riot and to want to call the authorities in into action against him or, or even to make a vow to put Paul to death. You know, and so um, th- this kind of it, it makes sense to me that there would be uh, a, a lot of this in the mindset in in the hearts even of converted jewish um believers in in the time of the early church right wasn't wasn't jesus supposed to make things better wasn't his kingdom supposed to come wasn't there supposed to be peace i think right if we've given up land shouldn't we get a hundred times back so where where are my hundred vineyards (laughs) you know right and i think i think also uh jeff something that i found um a lot of evangelical churches can we can treat a lot of the commands in the new Testament as I don't want to say throw away, but for instance, James one 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness with me. So put away the rampant wickedness and the filthiness from your life. Okay, done. Got it. And move on because <laughs> the new heart doesn't produce filthiness and rampant wickedness. So we're good to go there. Let's just move on. But James is really correcting something that was happening in this community, something that people that actually belong to Jesus were dealing with. And you think about James, as you just mentioned, you know, in the gospels, the things that Jesus had to directly correct his 
disciples with, you know, put down your sword. This is not how this is going to happen. It's not going to happen by you trying to hack away at this man trying to arrest me. Um, there's a new way that I'm going to teach you about. And James seems to be uh, in that line. Absolutely. There's this, there's this political rebellious kind of atmosphere in the first century, in the first century Jewish culture. We, we know this because they didn't like Rome. Okay. They're, they were constantly in rebellion against Rome. Um, I got this new book. Some of you may have seen it by Guy Rogers. Uh, it's a big fat book called For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, um, 66 to 74 uh, CE. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a buildup. It's a huge book. It's like, what, 800 pages. It, it, it shows wow. how it built up to the final rebellion right before AD 70. And this is, it, it's been going on. Uh, there, there are, we already know there are zealots, even in Jesus band of disciples. Um, we, and, and the Jews have, have had this kind of, um, oh, 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 also in Acts chapter, what is it? Four and five. We, we learn that there are all of these little bands of, of, uh, men out there who are re rebelling against Rome and claiming to be the Messiah, uh, claiming to be the one who brings deliverance. And so it's in that political fervor that Jesus brings his kingdom. But as you said earlier, Brian, it's not malice and wickedness, rampant filthiness um, that brings in the kingdom. It's meekness and meekness of the implanted word Right. which is able to save your souls. Now, again, here we as suburbans re, suburbanites reread this, which is able to save your souls. And we think, well, it's about like individual salvation. And I'm, I'm not denying it is about that. But if you read it like this is powerful to deliver your lives. Okay. Well, that right. read it like that, it's like, guys, I'm trying to tell you how the deliverance comes. How you know you don't want to be persecuted forever. You want to see a harvest of righteousness, and that can't just refer to like individual good works. You want to see cultural change. You want to see social change. You want your families in a better position. You want your your uh, your country. You, you want it. You want all these good things. Well, what's able to deliver your lives uh, and bring in this righteousness that God has promised? It's not these kinds of things. It's not this kind of anger, or even in chapter two, it's not appeasement. It's not sucking up to all the rich, all the rich persecutors and thinking somehow that that's going to deliver you. No. And so the whole book of James is talk, talking about how, how they're going to get deliverance from this situation. So Jeff, let's um, discuss some sort of alternative uh, hypotheses of, of, um, the context into which James is written. So as I understand it, it's quite a typical view to look at the opening, uh, 12 tribes, um, and to read the dispersion as a reference to the diaspora. So I'm assuming that on that view, um, you would think that there are all sorts of um, Jews scattered all over the Roman kingdom who have often been there for historical reasons, diasporized communities some of them have been converted and um this is a letter um 
that James has now sent out to them. Um, you're taking the term scattered, just sort of by way of recap to some extent, in a uh, a different sense, a sense more grounded in the scattering that took place in, in Acts 8. Um, talk to us about kind of some of the um, differences in reading James that those two views might entail and um, how you think this more uh, early and uh, perhaps localised sense of, of the diaspora um, kind of works better? Good question. If this is written later, well, first of all, a, a lot of modern or modernist commentators will think that this might even be a pseudepigrapha. Um, and so this is not really James, but somebody writing as James much later maybe later in the first century, even in early second century. And then, of course, that kind of would fit with this as well, writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion, a general sense in which is the uh, diaspora. Um, but those who take this as uh, James the Just, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that he's writing to the Jewish Christians who were present in Pentecost, and who have since went back home after the feast. Uh, and so James is writing a letter to them. Um, yeah, my, my, my big problem with that is that it just doesn't, it doesn't give the best explanation for the content of James. Everything to me seems to point to this being the dispersion, and, and the same Greek word is used in Acts uh, 8 and also Acts 11 to refer to what happened to the Jerusalem Christians after the persecution uh, that Saul instigated. Um, and that's that's my, my big point is, and I just ask people, just read through the book with that in mind and see if things don't hang together better than uh, a general letter sent out to dispersed Jewish Christians, right? Just around around the Roman Empire, okay. But why why then all these specifics? Why why does why does that does at, at seem? Then you have to you also have to make a lot of these statements metaphorical and spiritual and not literal and physical. And I don't think that works. Uh, maybe that's helpful. That's not, that's not a really academic kind of answer to that question, but that's, that's my perspective. No, it, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, part of the issue, which, or one of the issues I've found helpful to think about as I've been chewing, these, chewing it over, is that if, if this is written to, let's say, a historically diasporized community, um, I guess we could say, or we could just infer from the letter um, that this fits, because really we don't know much about that kind of community. Um, you know, perhaps there are some uh, diasporized Jews still living in Babylon uh, who are kind of Nehemiah-type figures over there. Perhaps there are some elsewhere in a Asia Minor, but we, we, we can't say much about them. Um, we, we do, however, know... A great deal, or at least a, a fair amount, about various Jewish believers who are scattered from Jerusalem 
in the midst of the persecution which takes place under folk like Saul and, and so forth, because we know about their background in Jerusalem. We know about the kind of things they would have heard about in Jesus's ministry or from the early um, apostles. We, we know about the, the things described in Acts and uh, um, uh, dissension and riots and, and turmoil there is as the um, gospel goes into new areas. So we, we have got there in the gospels and, and Acts a, a lot about the um, mind and, and background rather than just really this kind of blank canvas of uh, diasporized communities, um, some of whom have been converted. And, and so it seems to me that uh, at least on your view, we're working from a position of knowledge rather than just from a, um, a fairly blank canvas. Yeah, good. And we're letting the scripture interpret scripture too. Uh, the, the, the clearest seems to me anyway, that reference to the dispersion is going to be where that word is used to describe in Acts 8 and 11, the dispersed Christians uh, because of the persecution. Right, which might then take us on to the question of, of the rich. So um, there is clearly um, a lot of tension between the rich and the poor um, in the uh epistle of, of James there there is favoritism being shown to some of the rich in um, chapter two uh, in chapter five the, the rich are keeping back um, wages um, against the uh, against the poor and um, I wanted to, to know what, what you made of, of the rich there because at times it feels like the the rich are portrayed as uh, really a, a, as outsiders and you've got this poor community and they're being oppressed um, by the rich from outside. But at times it feels as if James is writing to um, the lowly and the rich as if they're sort of hand by hand uh, or side by side brothers in a Christian um, fellowship. So in chapter one, um, verses nine and 10, you've got this um, uh, exhortation, let the lowly brother boast in his exhortations, uh, the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away and 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 so forth so um yeah i, I wanted to um get your thoughts on how, how you conceive this interaction between the uh the rich and the poor and, and who you identify the rich with here yeah good questions uh, let me just do a summary because we'll be getting into some of these details when we actually get to these passages but the summary is that the rich here, first of all, are the rich oppressors. They're the covenantally wealthy. They're those in Jerusalem who have all the power and authority and are using it against these lowly brothers and these lowly Christians. Uh, they've banished them, uh, and now they're pursuing them. So, um, for example, in chapter 2, just quick, just a quick overview here. Um, the call to not show partiality. Uh, the man who comes in has a gold ring. Uh, that is a ring of authority. That's a signet ring. He's got fine clothing. That's a robe of authority. He comes into your assembly and they pay attention to him and they have him sit in an important place. Um, and then all of a sudden, and when 
just to move down into chapter five and verse five. Uh, Listen, beloved brothers, God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich and the heirs of the kingdom. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not those who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called or which was invoked over you, possibly a reference to baptism there? And so the rich here are not just, you know, wealthy people. They are the ones who are pursuing them, dragging them into court. They are the ones with authority. And then the other thing I'd say is uh, what, what ties this together also is in James chapter 5, when James goes into full prophetic mode, uh, denunciation, he and said, come now, you rich. Well, who's he talking about there? Well, the, her, their garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver has corroded. Um, and they've laid up treasure in the last days. All right, so uh, who has gold and silver? Well, that's the temple. Uh, and their garments are moth, their, their priestly garments are moth written. And then he says this, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud or crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You've lived in luxury or you've lived gloriously on the land. And it's the land of Israel self-indulgence, fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you've condemned and murdered the righteous one. He did not resist you. That's Jesus. These are the Jews. These are the covenantally rich. Um, And uh, holding back the wages of the laborers, that's Matthew 9 stuff. That's Jesus saying, the uh, the harvest is ready. The laborers are few. I'm going to send you guys out into the harvest. And he did. But of course, the Jewish leadership didn't didn't honor them, didn't give them their due. Um, And so all of this in James is designed to help them understand that all the prophecies that Jesus prophesied, and he did did a great deal of it against the Jewish leadership and the temple and the whole structure, the whole structure of the old age. These things are coming to pass. He's the Lord of armies, and he's going to do it. Um, and so um, I, I, I really think, first of all, that these rich are the Jewish oppressors. But also, James, and I think this is important, Jesus is raising up or wanted to raise up and tra- uh, train up a, a new leadership. He didn't want, you know, meet the new boss same as the old boss, as the song goes. Uh, and so uh, he, he doesn't want within his community to be this kind of partiality either. So it's not an either or, it's what you can learn from, uh, from what, how the oppressors are treating us. We don't want to treat others like that as well. In fact, in the book of James, you have all these references to um, orphans and widows and you have the sister or brother who's poorly clothed and lacking food. And if you think about, again, their situation, they're going to have a lot of these folks because they've been displaced. Uh, they don't have money. 
Uh, and some of these some of these children have lost their parents in the persecution, in the inquisition that the Jews are engaged in against them. And so they need to take care of them. They, they don't want to be like their rich persecutors. They want to be like Jesus and love and care for the poor. And in fact, even during the time of Jesus, the poor and the needy in Israel were basically they basically got there because of the uh, inappropriate and self-aggrandizing behavior of the Jewish leadership. That's that's continuing. That needs to stop. Let's move into a, a, a brief discussion about authorship. I know who who one lands on as being the author of this book, which James we're talking about, is not the end-all be-all for interpretation. That may rely more on the dating and and the context of the book, which we've already kind of um, started to discuss briefly here, but let's let, let's discuss this. I mean, I, I've looked at some older commentaries, and when uh, James, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, is mentioned, it's usually even by someone like Calvin is quickly dismissed. Well, Herod killed him shortly after the resurrection, so it's clearly not him. And then move on, Jeff. You you have a take here that uh, suggests that it could be. Uh, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. You, you make a case for, for him and the potential of it being James, the brother of Jesus. But what are your thoughts on authorship here? Why, why James, the son of Zebedee? So, so why is it that James couldn't have written this? I, I asked, I've asked lots of people. Right. I've even asked other professors, New Testament professors, and their only answer is it's too early. Well, wait a minute. Even even good commentators on James say that the book of James shows evidence of being an early, early kind of early stage of Christianity. There's not there's not a lot of there's nothing in here about uh, the works of the law, for example. The whole Pauline debate uh, that happens in the middle of Acts uh, is is not mentioned at all. In fact, if this is James the Just, it's really kind of hard to believe that he would do he would write what he wrote at the end of chapter two about faith and works and not mention anything about the dispute between Paul and, and the Jews and the Judaizers, as we call them, nothing at all. Uh, and also uh, other commentators will note that uh, there's a lot in here, a lot of allusions, a great many allusions to Jesus sermon on the Mount and to other parts of the book of Matthew. So, I mean, the, the book shows some signs that it is the content of the book, that it is early. And yet, every time you ask somebody this question, it's, well, it's too early. James was killed in 43 or 44 AD, and so he couldn't have written. And I, and I just say, why couldn't he have written it? Mm -hmm. In fact, if, if indeed there was an urgent need, given the dispersion uh, and the banishment of these Christians, Surely, a book, or a book, or a letter like this could have been written fairly quickly. I mean, yes. Uh, and, and my well, the other thing I, I say to, about this is, um, they'll, they'll say, "Well, you know, that's really quick." Well, look at Paul writes letters to all of his churches uh, immediately, straight straight away when there's a problem, right? And gets it sent. Uh, and we don't have any problem with that. We don't say it's too early. Did Paul wait 
10 years or two decades before he addressed the Galatian issue? No, he wrote it right away. Uh, so I don't, I don't buy this. I, I, th I think it's largely driven by kind of modern academic uh, uh, tradition mm -hmm. that somehow everything has to be in, in an oral tradition before it's ever written down. Uh, and I think more and more uh, books of the New Testament are being recognized as being much earlier than they thought it was. So, for example, I got this new book by uh, Jonathan Bernier. It's called Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament, just published by Baker Academic. And it's Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament, Evidence for Early Composition. Let me just give you an example. When he talks about James, he says, uh, if the son of Zebedee were the author, then the epistle James could date no later than the early 40s. If, if it's the brother of the Lord, no later than the early 60s. Because the early 40s is usually considered too early for the epistle of James, there has emerged a general agreement that the author is James, the brother of the Lord. Against this general agreement, one could raise three challenges. First, thus far, we have found nothing to exclude a date for the epistle of James in the early 40s or even the 30s. And thus, James, the son of Zebedee, remains a possible author. Mm -hmm. And then he, the se his second thing is um, that James might be uh, pseudonym pseudonymous, and, but we'll just dismiss that. But and, and anyway, there you have uh, a, a brand new work, really having no argument against James being James, the son of Zebedee, and written in the 30s. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I wonder, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I wonder if a large part of it um, involves just presuppositions about when other books have been written. So, I mean, I imagine most people who read the book of James will soon come to the conclusion, look, there, there's a lot of crossover with the Sermon on the, on the Mount here. There are similar themes, similar um, images and, and so forth. And I wonder if a lot of people notice that and then say, okay, well, this must presuppose some sort of reliance on Matthew. And um, we know, quote unquote, you know, that Matthew was written in perhaps late 50s, early 60s or, or something. So James must be um, late. And um, I, I wonder if, if that's behind a, a lot of it. And if so, Again, I, I don't know where you stand on, on gospel authorship, but I would want to push back um, against a, a lot of those presuppositions. I mean, uh, I don't see why we have to think that um, Matthew was late. Um, we've got lots of evidence of um, disciples, of rabbis who took notes of their rabbis' teachings right. even when they were alive and when they were actually um, teaching. We've got evidence of... Um, shorthand in like Hebrew shorthand from the first century and, and that kind of um, note taking. So I, I don't know why we have to think that the um, uh, gospel of Matthew was late. And I don't even know why we, we would have to say that James was written after it. I mean, if, if you think that Jesus has gone around teaching with his disciples and giving teaching like the Sermon on the Mount in hundreds of different villages uh, throughout the Judean, throughout Galilee and, and Judah as, as well. And that this kind of uh, this 
ethos of Jesus would just by that stage have been really ingrained into the um, disciples. I don't know then why we'd even have to say that this needs Matthew to have been written first. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you've got different views on, on some of those things. No, no, that's very helpful, James. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, those of us who've been involved with Biblical Horizons and Theopolis for a while, for decades, have taken the early church view, the Augustinian view of the order of the Gospels being Matthew, the canonical order being the order in which they're written. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've also uh, tended to push back on this idea that somehow Matthew uh, was written, you know, a decade or even two decades after the ascension of Jesus. Um, and the pushback has been, these are Jews. They're people of the book. They're Messiah. They believe their Messiah has come. They're not going to write it down. They're just going to pass things on orally for 10 years. Right. That seems, that seems outrageous. Um, so, so if, if, if we're right about Matthew being written first, and if it was written in the thirties, uh, then either James, what you said that uh, the what Jesus had taught is is still percolating around in James is writing his book. So Matthew's gospel was either already composed when James wrote the book or beginning to circulate or in the process of being written. And James, because he's a member of the Apostolic Brotherhood, has some access not just to Matthew's material, but mm -hmm. to friendship. I mean, th this is a little community. These people talk. Um, now, uh, here's here's an example. So Dan McCartney in his is is a commentary on James. Um, is a good commentary. Has a lot of interesting uh, and helpful uh, uh, observations. He says this: It is as though James is imbued with the wisdom teaching of Jesus but not in the written form in which we find it. Okay, that's, that I'm talking now, that's certainly possible. All this points to a time quite early in the life of the church, prior to the theological reflections of Paul, prior to the circulation of the Gospels, mm -hmm. prior to the author of Hebrews or First Peter and the Johannine materials, or at least prior to the time when these other writings began to have become widespread and determinative and had determinative influence. James represents a state of Christian thinking that has not yet been determined by them and wow. hence is logically prior. Mm. Right, right. I actually can't remember where McCartney ends up. I think he does end up with uh, uh, James the Just, Jesus' brother being the author. Uh, but I, I will say this about this question as well. Mm. Uh, David Scare, who's a Lutheran professor, I think at Fort Wayne, has a commentary on James. And he has good arguments also that this is this should be dated earlier than we think. And it's and he says, even if it is James the Just, then it's before the Jerusalem Council. Uh, and his argument, of course, is because of the end of James chapter two shows no evidence of the quarrel between um, the Jewish Christians about works of the law and Paul. Mm. And that, I think you can add that to the list of things that argue for an earlier date. Yeah, this is a question for both of you guys, but why is there an academic hesitancy towards earlier 
dates of these writings. I mean, the Jews were a bookish people, as you just said, Jeff. There was that, uh, I would imagine, an expectancy of things to be handed down in physical written form by God as he does things in the world and with his people. But why, why is there a hesitancy to date things early? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Are you talking primarily primarily about Gospels, um, uh, Brian, or are you, are you thinking the epistles or, or, or both? Yeah, I'm thinking of both. Um, yeah, I know, I know that the Gospels, um, things can get pushed back quite a bit with this book that when I hear Jeff discuss what he just said about an earlier writing, it, it does seem to click and make sense with the urgency of the letter. But I'm not sure. Is it a textual? Is it a textual issue? Is it a something with the actual physical writings themselves that we have? I think I think it's mostly about gospels um, because I think everybody acknowledges that most of the epistles were written quickly to deal with specific problems and issues. Right. So there's no problem with that. I think it's the gospels that um, have this history in academic. Uh, circles about uh, being uh, oral first and then finally written down. Mm -hmm. I don't really know the answer to that uh, other than, well, what James, you're probably closer to this than I am. Uh, I haven't really looked into gospel research much in, in years. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if a large part of it is grounded in this idea of uh, evolution of thought over time and so we start with one gospel normally mark or, or perhaps the source material um, that underlies mark um, and then we slowly get kind of different gospels written in response to different problems in the in the wider world and i i yeah i i just don't know enough about it but i i would think that um there are some sort of uh, evolutionary views um, behind a, a fair bit of it, at least. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also thinking like yeah, I'm not even just saying that these are late dates that people are proposing, but even the comments of, well, you know, James, the son of Zebedee, was murdered, so he couldn't have written it. They they, they can seem like just like easy ways out to yeah, deal with the right. fact that letters take just a few hours to write and to circulate. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you have to wonder also whether there's uh and, and you know this happens is you're you're writing these academic commentaries and you know your peers are going to be um reviewing it and sure. then judging you um taking taking a stance that james was written earlier than any of your academic peers are saying would be kind of risky <laughs> um yeah I mean, it, there's some of that. The other thing I wondered, uh, James, too, if, if I'm remembering right, is sometimes it, it seems to me like the Hellenistic culture becomes the norm. And, and if Peter were here, he could help us on this. It seems as if most of the Hellenistic literature began as oral recitation, like the poetry, um, the great epic poems. Um, and only later written down. Um, and maybe that is then superimposed on the Jewish world. Um, yeah, it, it, it may well be. It may well be part of that. I, I, I think that um, 
literacy rates could have uh, people's view of literacy could play into it as well. Um, if you think that there is a low literacy rate in various uh, populations, then you, you're probably going to think things spread orally um, predominantly at first. But I think a lot of these uh, calculations based on, on low literacy rates are, um, yeah, are quite tendentious or, or at least just open to question um, themselves. And, and so, yeah, it's one of these things where I think there are, there are so many presuppositions um, yeah. built into it. It's, it's very hard to actually tease them out and get to the bottom of uh, exactly what's driving what um, in, in some of this. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but even with low literacy rates, isn't there an understanding that some of these circular letters like James would have been passed along and then read in the presence of the people and then continue to move around and be shared? Am I, am I off base there? Oh, that's, a, that's exactly right. Is uh, no one was going to have the epistle of James on their, on their bedstand uh, or in their bookshelf because <laughs> that's, it, it wouldn't work the way you, the way you encountered these letters and the, this, the way you encountered the word of God is by it being read in the assembly. And so the letter would be, have been copied and then sent ahead to another church or just literally carried to another assembly and then read. So, right. Um, now the Jews were more literate, had apparently more literacy than others, but there's, a, there's always a scribal caste. There's a priestly kind of scribal vocation, a guild that was responsible for these books, what we would call books, these letters, these scrolls. I find it, I find it really fascinating here too. I was reading through Matthew 23 the other, other day, in fact, last week, and I was reminded that Jesus called these apostles not just to go around preaching, but actually to be the scribes to write the new uh, and fulfilled word. Uh, so in Matthew 23, when he's when Jesus is, is sending his woes to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, he's talking about them filling up the measure of their fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape from, the, from hell? I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. There's another example of Jesus prophesying exactly what happened in the early church, uh, but also scribes. He's going to send them scribes. Well, all the apostles are, have this scribal vocation. Um, and so we, I don't know, I don't know why we should, we would think that somehow they waited 10 years, 20 years until they wrote down the story, the narrative of Jesus. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. A couple of interesting things that you mentioned uh, in your book are, you know, the fact of uh, just the Jerusalem council. Yeah. Um, and also if it's before it, we would likely see this as being before the Galatian heresy, because if that heresy in Paul's letter had been known at this time, it may have shaded some of the writing that James has in his letter here. Um, right. That's a little bit suspect, um, but it's, it is interesting to have these kind of guideposts of the Jerusalem council, the Galatian heresy to kind of help us in, in placing this book in a, in a time. Yeah. Also 
uh, if this is James, I mean, he's he's one of the three mighty men, we could say, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's got some authority. He's he uh, he would be well known. So him writing the way he does with such vehemence against their behavior and their speech, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, of course, James the Just could have done that also as a pastor. I'm, I'm not denying that. But it seems more likely that this is an apostle. And it again, it has the imprimatur of the apostles that Jesus appointed to be his scribes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.